the scripture reading for today is from Luke 6, verse 20 and 24. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Thank you, Marty. Let's join in prayer together. Gracious God, as we hear your word today, we pray that you would open our ears to it, to hear it, our minds to understand it, our hearts to receive it, our hands to be prepared to, to share it, and our feet ultimately to go with it out into the world that needs to hear your word as well. We pray that you would speak to us today through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been uh, in a series we have called Leaning In, looking at a life of discipleship and what it means to come towards Jesus and lean into what he is saying to us so that we can hear and receive what he wants to teach us. As we've looked at in the last few weeks, Jesus went up on the mountainside, we're told, in Luke 6, and had an all-night prayer meeting with the Father. He nurtured his relationship with the Father in a continued way, and it seems this is how he received his marching orders, so to speak. And in that all-night meeting, Jesus then comes down from the mountain and calls his disciples to him. Specifically, we have seen that he called a band or a group of 12 of them, kind of reforming what was in the past the 12 tribes of Israel, reforming the people of God. He calls those disciples to himself and he appoints 12 of them to be apostles, literally sent ones, people that will be called out from the world but then prepared to go out back into the world with that same good news. We have seen How people gathered to hear his teaching. People wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. They also needed healing from their diseases. And we got to hear a testimony of someone who had recently experienced God's healing. There there are those gathered there to hear this word and receive healing who also needed deliverance from evil spirits who were troubling them. And many of us are troubled in our own day and age. There's so many mixed messages we hear. It's so confusing to to live a life of, uh, and challenging to live a life of discipleship in the midst of the competing messages we hear every day. Now, in in the passage that we read just last week and now leaning into this one, Jesus looks at his disciples in the context of the wider crowd and shares his messianic manifesto or primary message with them in describing what the kingdom of God is like and what kind of character those entering the kingdom are meant to have. Luke's sermon here is given on a level place, not up on the mountain. And it seems that both Matthew, who wrote down the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke, who writes what we call the Sermon on the Plain, had made theological use of the geography Luke is showing us that Jesus comes down from the place of prayer on the mountain and spending time with his disciples and gets with the people. So just as Jesus identified with the people in his baptism, he now identifies with them in his teaching. The crowd and the level place is made up of at least three groups. 
the apostles, those special called out ones who will be sent out for him, the disciples, those who are gathering to hear and learn and what it means to follow Jesus, and the people, people who are simply there to hear, perhaps discern whether following Jesus was for them. And in the midst of those different crowds and people coming towards, what we see is that Jesus' ministry and message is ultimately for all. If you came here today wondering whether this is for you, the gathering of the different people there to hear this message essentially tells you, yes, it is for you, it is for the world. We all need to hear these words. Certainly the audience then includes the, the sick and the distressed, people of special concern to Luke's Jesus. Luke's gospel in particular again and again shows Jesus' concern for those who are troubled and are facing the challenges of life. And within this larger audience, the sermon seems particularly suited or spoken to the disciples. In other words, he needs them to get this message in order to be a part of transforming the world as he talks about here. So in verse 20, we see it says, he lifted his eyes up on his disciples and said, in other words, he's looking at you and he's looking to you to learn his words and allow his teaching to become such a part of who you are that you become his transformational agents in the world. But notice at the end of the sermon in Luke 7, 1, it'll say, after he had ended all his sayings in the hearing of the people. So perhaps what Luke means here is that these teachings are for Jesus' followers, the disciples, but for also for all who would be disciples who are considering, who are discerning. This would make sense because the essential theme of the Bible from the beginning is God's purpose of calling out a people for himself and that this people is to be a holy, set-apart people from the world to belong to him and obey him, but then live out that identity and calling. At the men's retreat, the speaker, Otto Kelly, was talking about Jesus' baptism. And when the father says, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. We get Jesus' identity and belonging to the father, affirmation in his love, and then that affirmation, with you I am well pleased. Similarly for us, we need to hear God's call and and, and celebrate our identity in Christ each and every day if then we are meant to and will be empowered to go out and live out his calling for us. You see, you are to be part of the distinctive people of God, salt and light in the world, meant to clearly live differently from the world around us and to be distinguished by the fact that you are allowing Jesus to lead your life. We are to give our allegiance to Jesus first then, but then serve as the apostles whom Jesus bestows his authority on and blesses to then be a blessing to others. The Beatitudes then in Luke's description as well as Matthew's are Christ's own description of what each of his followers ought to be like or live like in order to reflect his likeness. 
Just as Paul described nine characteristics in Galatians 5 of what it means to reflect the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these qualities of blessing are meant to be a sense of identification for us and teaching that then we live out as his followers, remembering that we have been called out from the crowd in order to live differently, in order to live in Jesus' likeness, and in order to shine his light. If we are citizens of God's kingdom, what we're seeking to do is embrace the values of his kingdom in the here and now, countercultural values, but values that then as we embrace, we start to look at life through God's lens. And clearly as we do that, we see that he has an apparently upside-down kingdom. That just as Jesus descended from the Father and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, Jesus would call us to be a part of his upside-down kingdom by announcing that there are blessings available to the poor and that we have to watch out when we are rich, that we not become consumed by those things that may consume us. So Jesus speaks of a series of blessings and woes here between verses 20 through 26. And Pastor Greg and I will be taking, you know, one of the blessings and and the corresponding woe each of the next four weeks to talk about them. If you look at Matthew's Beatitudes, he simply has a list of nine blessings. Matthew stays just on the positive side. But in Luke's listing of the, the Beatitudes, there's a blessing, but then a corresponding Whoa, what we're to watch out for. Luke has four sets of these. He parallels the poor and the rich, the hungry and the full, the weeping and the laughing, the rejected and the accepted. Even in the English translation here of Jesus' teaching, we can see the corresponding blessing and woe and see that there are both blessings now and things to watch out for now, but there are also anticipations of what God's kingdom will be like. Here what we find is that Jesus' teaching on the blessings and the woes corresponds with Old Testament teaching from places like Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. But there's a major difference. In Deuteronomy, the blessing or the curse was contingent on behavior. You did certain things and you got certain results. But here, there's no contingency. No urging, no exhortation to act so as to receive the blessing or avoid the woe. Rather, this is about, in our context, what Jesus is pronouncing upon people already as a result of who he is and what he has taught us. In other words, we're living into Jesus' way of kingdom living. He's making an official proclamation as the king who has come and who is setting about the corresponding realities of his kingdom. And we are invited to live into those. What we see here is teaching that is almost like bombshells going off. When we hear, blessed are the poor, we think, what? What are you talking about? But what we find in the blessing, the word makarios in the Greek, is not something that simply 
be happy in terms of, you know, kind of circumstantial realities and what's happening in your life. Happiness in that sense is not a subjective state, but it is about living into the joy of the kingdom of God that he has for us, the privileges of being a citizen of his kingdom and the guidance then we need to live a kingdom kind of life. The promises here of Jesus and the Beatitudes and uh, have both a present and a future fulfillment. What I mean by that is we enjoy the first fruits now. The full harvest is yet to come. In this way, living into the blessings and the woes and this reality of God's kingdom is about anticipating what the future reality will be like and living in light of it. The good news for us is these are proclamations of grace. In other words, it's God's grace and mercy that leads to blessings for the poor. And, as we'll talk about, it's God's grace and mercy where there are woes for the rich who might overly rely on our earthly resources. Being invited into God's right living here is about recognizing that we cannot please God and ourselves and our own strength or ability. In other words, much like the Old Testament, we will never fulfill all the the laws and precepts of God. But what that can do is lead us into a place of brokenness and vulnerability where there is then openness to God's new reality. What we also find is we receive, as we receive God's justification through Christ, we are then able to live into a life that pleases God. In other words, we receive the blessing of grace and forgiveness in our own poverty, and then we become people who are able to bless other people in return. So know that these words that we are processing and learning about are for those who have already received forgiveness in a way, have already accepted and found the pearl of great price, who have been invited to the wedding and who have an opportunity to say yes. In this sense, the sermon is not law, but it's gospel. The gospel declaration of what God, in his grace, has done for us through Christ. And then the commandments or calls to live life in relationship to what God has already done. I think of this being similar in that way to the Ten Commandments. One of the things I've reminded us of in the past is when God gives the Ten Commandments, his laws to live by, remember that he's already rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, right? He's brought them into the promised land, or is bringing them into the promised land, I should say. And now he's inviting them to take on his way of maintaining that freedom. The best way for me to think of the Ten Commandments is actually the Ten Freedoms. Because when you live out the invitation to worship and serve one God, when you forsake idols, when you honor your father and mother, when you are faithful in the context of your marriage, when you don't steal or you don't lie, you actually maintain the freedom that God has already won for you. So what Jesus is doing here in the Beatitudes, the blessings and the woes, is sharing with you how to maintain the freedom that he's already won for you. Freedom to share what you have with other people in need. Freedom to not be consumed by our marketplace mentality in our culture and all that we possess that unfortunately can very easily possess us. 
The blessings of invitation then are for those who are accepting Christ's way of salvation, accepting and embracing God's upside down kingdom that is calling us to live differently and yet fully into a new reality. To not only receive God's kingdom blessings ourselves, but to be part of the people who then bless others in return. So how do we understand the first one in this light? Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We have to understand this in the background of the Old Testament. In places like Isaiah 61, there is an announcement that the kingdom of God will come and will be different. That there will be an upheaval or upside down nature of the kingdom where the poor will actually become those who are blessed. What is meant by that? Well, both in the Old Testament and now into the New, as Jesus proclaims this beatitude, the poor can be seen as literal, those who are literally in poverty, but then are open to receive God's blessing. In other words, when you are poor and in need, you understand that everything you have is a gift. For those of us who are wealthy, and we pretty much have to put all, our, all of us in that category, we can start to think that we have earned or we deserve all that we have, and we miss out on receiving the reality that everything we have is from God and in his grace. One person I was talking to at the men's retreat and I were discussing this reality. He makes a, a, a good income, uh, you know, and, and, and is a smart person and, and has, has worked hard to get where he's at. But we sort of unpacked that and talked about God being the one who enables us to work. He's given us these bodies. He's given us these minds. He's given us the spiritual gifts and human, you know, uh, natural gifts and, and acquired skills to be able to work. All of it is an act of grace and mercy. All that we have is from him. The poor in the Old Testament, as we get into the new, are those who have been afflicted or may be unable to save themselves, but then who look to God for salvation. And we all need to look to God for salvation, right? None of us earns it or deserves it. We all fall short of the glory of God, and then we are all then in a place of need. Isaiah's uh, prophecy would speak into the reality of how physical poverty, phys- you know, need and, and that place of, of openness and availability then to, to be filled by God and from a source outside ourselves leads into a reality that, that spiritual poverty is a similar thing where, where, where we become open and available as a result of a humble and contrite heart to receive what God has to give. You see, some of us are so wealthy in one sense, physically, or in our prosperity, that our hands aren't open to receive what God has to give out of his grace and mercy. In Isaiah, then, there would be one who would come from on high, a lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, and who God's presence is pleased to dwell, who would then come. The Lord's anointed who would proclaim the good news of salvation, a prophecy which Jesus consciously fulfilled when he went into the Nazareth synagogue and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
In this way, the, the rich can, can tend to compromise while the poor might remain open and, and available. But particularly spiritually, the poor in spirit are those who acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy to, before God. That we don't bring anything to the table that makes us someone who then earns or deserves God's favor. But we are broken and flawed at the core of who we are, falling short of the glory of God. And we have nothing to offer and nothing to, to plead, nothing to earn or deserve God's favor And then we become open and available to him. John Calvin would say, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So whether we're physically poor and in need, or whether we are spiritually poor, as, as Matthew talks about those being poor in spirit, we become people who are open and available to receive what God has to give, rather than being so full in ourselves. The corresponding woe, then, is woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. What's the key to understanding this? It is understanding that Jesus uses for his words, have, is a word for using, uh, for understanding and receiving payment in full or on our account. In other words, the rich have, have kind of received their reward, received their, their, what they, they have sought for. But the problem is that if you set your heart and bend your whole energies to obtain the things which the world values, you will get them, but that is all you will ever get, Jesus is saying, if you don't let go of those things to receive what he has to give. In other words... If we are so full of what we carry, we're not, our hands are not open to what God has to give. In contrast, if you set your heart to be utterly loyal to God and to be Christ, you will run into often all kinds of trouble. And by the world's standards, you may be unhappy in a way, but you are ready to receive his reward and his blessing. In other words, the woe here. And we might say, woe, like, whoa, you're driving a car and you're about to run into somebody. The woe is to look out for the ways that you sought to comfort yourself in earthly goods instead of ultimately in relationship with God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. When Jesus announces or pronounces woe to the rich, then it's not simply uh, because they are wealthy, but because we may be in a place where we've chosen present gratification over future blessing. And our culture is one of instant gratification, isn't it? We seek to satisfy ourselves immediately versus staying open to the potential that God may have something more or different. The woe can also be because rich people can critic- are criticized in Luke because they disregard spiritual realities. In other words, if we're so focused on physical realities and what we possess, again, those things may come to possess us. We spend a lot of time keeping our goods and our possessions in right order, don't we? Keeping up cars, keeping up our homes. All those things can have the potential of consuming all our time and energy, and we then have nothing to give to others. But instead, we're called to flip the script 
and be a part of God's blessing to other people versus just allowing the things that we have, again, to consume us. James Alcorn, his book, The Treasure Principle, has several principles along these lines that are helpful. First of all, he sees that God sees our faith and our finances as inseparable. In other words, how we relate to our possessions, how we relate to our finances, is directly related and impacts our spiritual life. What Alcorn invites us to see is that giving leads to joy. When you lead a life, live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving to God where you give yourself away, you receive much more in return. You see, if we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of the temporal, we store up for ourselves treasure in heaven that, we will, that will never stop paying dividends. We're making an eternal investment in someone else's life. So Alcorn would see a principle similarly along the lines of Jesus' teaching here. That God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. That when we receive what God blesses us with, we are meant to bless other people in response. To watch out for allowing those things again to consume us, but be ready and willing to give away in order to be a part of God's blessing of other people. This is radical teaching. God's upside down kingdom is initially very hard to understand. But when we receive what Jesus gives here, we find ourselves invited to live a life of freedom. Freedom from possessions and finding our satisfaction and joy only in it. And freedom to live in light of God's new, deeper spiritual realities. What we believe here is that Christ began to call 12 people to himself and then gave this teaching about blessings and woes in order to shape us as kingdom people prepared to celebrate the inauguration of his kingdom. To see that there is blessing in poverty because the poor know their need for help rather than dwelling in self-sufficiency. Their blessing we are told, is inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's inheriting their identity as God's people. Their blessing is about recognizing and receiving what God has to give because they've stayed dependent on God and reliant on him rather than having no room for him. Similarly, those who are rich or wealthy have at least have resources that may be the conduit of God's blessing for the poor as we share. In other words, when it says blessed are the poor, know that you may be the the very means of that blessing that God is wanting to extend. So when we give to our local mission partners, as we're going to hear about Bright Hope uh, Futures for Youth here in a moment, when we give to places like Hospitality House and Interfaith Food, we are being the conduit of God's blessing for the poor, a stream through which that blessing has flown. In this way, money, we might remember, is not itself evil, but it can be the root of all evil again. If we allow our stuff to so fill us, if we satiate ourselves with those resources, again, our possessions can start to possess us. But instead, we can seek first his kingdom 
and his righteousness and know that all these things will be given to you as well. Or we don't have to worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. We recognize, and this is true especially now, each day has enough trouble of its own. But when we live freely and lightly in light of God's kingdom, we find a different kind of life. Mother Teresa spoke to that kind of life when she said, only in heaven will we recognize how much we needed the poor because they call us out of ourselves and into a generous and giving kind of life. A life that is abundant and full, not because of our possessions, but because of the kind of relationships that have been nurtured in and through the opportunities that our possessions can give to be a blessing to others, and to participate in what God is doing. So how can you live into this reality, live into this new kind of life? Let me give you a few points of application in wrapping up. First, in your spiritual or physical poverty, recognize your need for salvation in greater ways. Recognize how deeply dependent you are on God and acknowledge that on a regular basis. In your wealth, you may realize that God is calling you to give, to be a conduit of God's blessing for the poor. Know that your giving to the church is giving through the church to minister to our community through local mission partners and global mission partners and a staff that is seeking to serve. Or in your wealth, you may confess or repent those false sources of comfort or consolation that you have looked to that perhaps you've made an idol out of and realize once again that only God can truly satisfy us and only God can truly fulfill us. My hope and prayer for you as you enter into this kingdom kind of life, as you lean into Jesus' teaching, you realize once again that he has a life that is more abundant and full than our possessions can provide. He has a life that is richer than even the greatest riches that this world can offer. When we live in communion with him and we become a conduit of his blessings to other people, church, there's nothing like it. Amen? Amen. Thank you.
Oh.